1207, Jeff Quack, WTMJ. I, I, I was thinking, we really do live in amazing times. When you think about all the technological developments and, and how things have have changed our, our lives. When I first started doing, doing a radio show, we, we did not have. I mean, Al Gore really hadn't invented the Internet in, in a meaningful sort of fashion. And what would happen is I, I remember I, I would go around and I would try to find as many hard copies of newspapers as I could. I'd scour through those looking for stories. Well, okay, now now you, you don't do that. Who gets a hard copy of a newspaper anymore? You sit down with your laptop computer and you search the universe of the Internet. And if you wonder about something going on in Great Britain, well, all right, you know, with a couple keystrokes, you can get to all sorts of websites that give you all the different variations of what's going on with Brexit and the policy. It's been an amazing change. I, I think about computers. I remember when I was in college, I was taking up my, my undergraduate degree is in business administration, and my senior year, I'm taking this class in. Um, it, it's a it's a business class, but one of the things that they do is they divide the class into like teams, and it, for a two week period of time, you you're you're all competitors in a particular industry, and every 24 hours you have to make business decisions, and those business decisions determine how well your company is going to do, you know, all those different things. So how did you record your business decisions? Well, what you do is is you would enter them into a, a computer, and then the computer would make the calculations, and then you'd find out how you did in relation to everybody else. Well, it's not like you sit down at a keyboard, though, and type things up. What you have to do is you had to physically go over to the the room in the business school where they had all these big, giant computers. And then you had to sit down with a bunch of computer punch cards, and you had to feed them into this machine, and you had to, like, type these these various things in some sort of peculiar type of language to, to enter all these different keystrokes. I mean, it was just... It's not like you, you sit down and you take the survey now, it, but it's what you had to do. But that was cutting edge at the time. Nowadays, we're all walking around with, I, I mean, I was I can remember being in this room and there's all these huge computers. My guess is the, the phone that I'm carrying around in my pocket right now has more computing power than this entire room full of things that I was sitting in front of, you know, back when I was in college taking this business administration class. So you've seen this in, incredible growth and it, it's an amazing time to be alive because you see these changes that just keep being made and made and made as technology continues to advance. So I think you can make a strong argument that this is, as far as technological development, that this is, we're in an unprecedented territory. Now, if you wanted to have a counter argument to that, one thing you could point to was the, the whole space race and how man learned to fly. I'm always amazed at this whenever I go to Washington, D.C. And by the way, if you ever have it, if you haven't been to Washington, D.C., you got to go. You, you, you just have to go, especially if you have any interest at all in history. And if you're certainly if you're a history geek like I am, you, you just have to go. And I, I could spend days and days and have spent days and days just hanging out at the, at the various Smithsonian's. And one of one of the museums that you have to go to is the Air and Space Museum. And, and you can. Walking through the Air and Space Museum, you can see everything from remnants and evidence about, you know, Wilbur and Orville Wright's first flight, which was in December of 1903. And you can take it all the way through the moon landing, um, the Apollo program. The moon landing was on July 20th of 1969. So in a space of 
65 or 66 years, we went from man has never flown before to landing a man on the moon. It, it is in, an incredible, it's just amazing. It's almost unthinkable that you were able to develop in that 65-year period. You could have you could, the technology that, gee, we, we now have you know, two guys who fly for 59 seconds in an airplane, um, and then you end up going to the moon. It, it was just an amazing period of time, as you saw you know, airplanes and the development of flight and things like that. It, it's always just amazed me. And I think in many respects, when you look at the technological developments, I, I think you could make an argument that that 50 or 60 years, when it comes to aviation all, might be one of the, the, the golden ages and one of the great times of scientific development in this country. And I, I say that with full appreciation of what is going on now. In any event, I remember the space race. Now, I was a little, I was a young boy then, but for people who have forgotten, I mean, we were at the height of a Cold War, and the big concern was it was the U.S. and it was Russia, and the big concern was who was going to own space, and the concern was, gee, whoever gets to the moon first, they're going to be able to set up bases, and they will be able to have missiles, and they'll have all this control. So there was a space race between the Russians and between the United States. The United States won that space race. And as I was talking to Steve Scafidi, I, I vividly remember where I was. And if you were if you were alive at the time, my guess is you do as well. It was the evening of July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong walks on the moon, gets out. And then, of course, you have the famous, you know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. He walks on the moon. Um, and then subsequent to that, there were other missions to the moon. We haven't been back to the moon in decades, but you know, we, we were in fact there. And I can remember my, we were on our way, we were on vacation. We lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My parents were from Baltimore, Maryland. We're driving back and we're in a motel in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I distinctly remember watching the moon landing on, on television. And you know, what an incredible accomplishment. And of course, you know, we've gone on from there to again, we have the space station and, you know, lunar landers and things like that. I, I bring this up because I remember where I was when we first walked on the moon. I guess I never realized that there were people out there or there are people out there who do not believe that we have ever been to the moon. All right. Steph Curry is the all-star guard for the Golden State Warriors. Arguably, well, I would say LeBron James is probably the best basketball player in the NBA, but but Steph Curry is probably the best shooter in in the NBA. Just an absolutely incredible basketball player who did, in fact, I don't know if he graduated, but he went to college. He went to Wake Forest. Went to went to Wake Forest, as I believe. So anyway, here is the the story. He's apparently on. He's doing a podcast with a couple of his buddies. The podcast is called Winging It. It's hosted by NBA players Vince Carter and Kent Bazemore. All right. And then there's a digital content coordinator for the Atlanta Hawks. So they're just they're 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 talking about different stuff. During this is the way the New York Times reports this. During a wide ranging talk among them, um that what happens is Curry shifts gears from whatever they're talking about and asks the others if they believed the United States had put a person on the moon. We ever been to the moon, he asked. The others, in unison, agreed that the answer was no. They're going to come get us, Curry replied. Sorry, I don't want to start conspiracies. 
Um, and so then the, the host <laughs> says, all right, let, let, let's kind of get into this. And they said, can you clarify? And Curry said he did not believe the U.S. had landed on the moon. And then um, they start talking about how Stanley Kubrick, you know, the, the famous movie director who did 2001 A Space Odyssey, that he had staged the whole thing. So Steph Curry believed, and this isn't a joke. This isn't a, hey, we're pulling your legs. This is a guy who doesn't believe that we have ever put a man on the moon and thinks that it's been this massive conspiracy, I guess, for the last, well, you know, 50 years or so, coming up on on 50 years, and we've never landed a person on the moon. And he seriously believes that. Now, it's interesting because since this story went, went public over the last 24 hours, there's a number of other people out there who apparently share this belief. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let, let me just, just tee this up. What do you do with or what do you say to people who believe that there has been, I guess, this vast conspiracy over the last almost 50 years to deny that the U.S. has ever been to, to the moon? Is this ignorance? Is this people who, I don't know, want to believe the conspiracies? Or is it, is, are they, might we be on to something? You know, could this have been a whole scam perpetrated by, I don't know, this massive government experience? But, I mean, there are people who don't believe we've been to the moon, I guess. How do we deal with them and what do we say to them? And apparently some of them are people who went to college and who have the ability perhaps to influence other young, impressionable people. 414-799-1620. Let's discuss. We're back in just a moment. 1217. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve nineteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. My producer is looking at me, telling me, Jeff, you started this. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Steph Curry, who went to Davidson. Sorry, I said Wake Forest. All you folks who went to Wake Forest, I apologize. Steph Curry went to Davidson. He um, was part of a podcast yesterday where he and a couple of his NBA buddies um, expressed the fact that they they think the whole moon landing thing is is a hoax, that we have never been to the moon, that it is a giant conspiracy um, among the U.S. government and presumably other governments to, I don't know, deceive the general public. 414-799-1620. What, what do you do with things like this? Let's start with Joan in Neosho. Joan, you're on WTMJ. Oh, that night that man was announced as landing on the moon, I was down at South Shore Park listening to Ferranti and Teicher on the pianos. When Jack Raymond, that wonderful announcer, interrupted and said, look up at the moon, man has just landed on the moon, it was just a thrilling moment. But if we had ever landed on the moon, I believe this America would have been up there at least once or twice a year since and established a colony. Well, you you recognize, of course, we have been we have been back to the moon on on multiple occasions. There were there were a number of missions after Apollo eleven where we did pe- put people on the moon. Now we haven't colonized it yet, but do do you think all those moon missions were were fake? I hadn't heard there were any more. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, th- thanks for coming. No, we we we've been we we've been back 
to the moon on 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 multiple occasions. Now, let's see. I mean, the last one I want to say the last one was uh, 1972, December of 72, which was Apollo 17. But you had Apollo 11, you had Apollo 12. Apollo 13 was the one where they had all the problems. You had Apollo 14, you had Apollo 15, 16, and 17 was, I believe, the, the last one. So um, we, we have been back to the moon. Now, the last manned mission, I believe, was 72, and, and so we haven't been back yet, although NASA is looking. I mean, of course, we, we made the decision that, okay, we've been to the moon, that now let's concentrate on, on other sort of things. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Glenn in Milwaukee. Glenn, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I, I'm well, thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, tell me you believe we've been to the moon. Oh, of course I do. Last Friday at dinner with, I had a dinner with Frank Borman from Apollo 8. Right. Circle the moon. Um, a Gemini astronaut, to think that these guys uh, are not genuine is beyond the pale. I, it floors me to think that there are people that don't believe this. <laughs> it's an extraordinary development in our, our nation's history, and uh, I, I'm flabbergasted. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, you talk about having dinner with, with, with Frank Borman. Buzz Aldrin, on, on various occasions, and he was, of course, with Neil Armstrong. I mean, Buzz Aldrin, he, he's been confronted with this. One of the legendary stories is somebody came up and, and called him a fake and said, you were never on the moon, and he apparently punched the guy in the nose. It was like, you know, what what what, what do you mean? I, I guess, I, I see, the larger point is, how do we get to a point 50 years later where there are there are educated extremely well-paid people who apparently are, are saying, okay, th- this is all a movie scam. I mean, how, how do we get to that point in this country or in this world where people think that? Well, in Steph Curry's case, I think it's arrogance. Uh, uh, <laughs> in, some, in some cases, I think it's just stupidity. Um, yeah, I don't know. Th- thanks for calling. But, but it's certainly out there. And I guess, you know, one of the things that sort of troubles me about it is the, the whole, you know, the whole notion that, well, I mean, there there are... There are impressionable, you know, there are impressionable member, you know, young people that are out there and, you know, they're, they're sitting there thinking, oh, oh my goodness, you know, this, if Steph Curry says this is true, it, it must, it, it must not be true. If it, you know, 414-799-1620, let's talk to Kathy and Franklin. Kathy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Happy holidays. Same to you. So, uh, we always talk about this story. Um, I, I believe that we went to the moon because this would be too well-planned of a conspiracy for all of these years, but maybe it can't happen. But my grandfather, who was... No, 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 stick with your your first instinct, Kathy, that that you couldn't keep this for 50 years as this giant conspiracy. Yeah. But my grandfather, who has passed away many years ago, was probably in his 70s when this took place. And he firmly, at that time, believed that it was all fake. But he believed that wrestling was real. (laughs) <laughs> well, my grandmother believed that pro wrestling was real, too. <laughs> to her to her dying day, you could never convince her that it wasn't real. No, my grandfather either. He, But he did not. He said, Kathy, there's no way that man went on the moon. So... That's how he went to his grave. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, th- th- thanks. For, you know, it's interesting. Thanks. For, I, a, a couple of years back, I had the opportunity to. Um, I, I was emceeing a dinner that the um, that, that the the Army Navy group and they have around Armed Services Week every year, and they're, they're kind enough they've been inviting me back to be the MC for a number of years. And the keynote speaker a couple of years back was Jim Lovell, who was the commander on Apollo thirteen. Apollo thirteen was the 
it was the one that didn't get there because they had all the problems and you had to turn it around. It's a very successful Ron Howard movie as well. And I had an opportunity to talk to Jim Lovell for a while. And matter of fact, I go to a lot of these events and I don't typically geek out and, you know, I don't stand in line to have my photos taken with people. I have a photo of me and Jim Lovell because, it, but, you know, it was interesting. I was just talking to him and, you know, and it's, so you would have to believe if, if you believe that we've never been to the moon and the entire moon program was a, was a fake, you'd have to believe that there's all these astronauts and all these people who worked at NASA and all these people who cross, worked across the world, because keep in mind the Soviet Union and a number of other countries, you know, everybody else was tracking it and everybody had different developmental sort of, and had a role in, in trying to develop uh, the space program. You'd have to believe that that everybody is, is lying, really. Richard in Greenfield. Richard, you're on WTMJ. Uh, good afternoon and Merry Christmas. Same Thanks to you. My call. Merry Christmas to you as well, sir. Thank you so much. I when I get in this discussion at at the old fire pit over cocktails. <laughs> Go ahead. You still there? The Saturn rocket was almost equivalent to the size of our city hall downtown. Imagine a massive object like that, full of fuel, uh, with millions viewing it right there on, at Cape Canaveral, launching into space and breaking Earth's uh, gravitational pull, and that this was done numerous times. Uh, where's the, where's the, the elusive, or not the illusion of, of, of perpetrating some kind of uh, uh, right. ma- magic with this? It, it's very visual, it's very uh, tangible, it was right in front of us, and as you mentioned, other countries were tracking this as well. Right. And uh, thanks for taking my No, call. thanks. I mean, it's just it, it's just kind of these bizarre things. Now, I got a text saying, why do we care what Steph Curry thinks? And, and yes, right, I, I understand that on a superficial level. Why do you care what he thinks? I, I get it. But at the same time, this is arguably the best basketball player in the NBA now. LeBron, you know, you can have an argument. Is it Curry? Is it LeBron James? This is somebody that, that thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of young people look up to and idolize and respect. And, and he's sitting here apparently going off on this. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I try to say this respectfully. I appreciate that, you know, people, reasonable people can disagree on stuff. But if you believe that we did not land on the moon in 1969, th- that's a kooky theory. I'm not saying you are a kook. I'm saying it is a kooky theory. It's just, you know, it, it is not it is not reality. It, it's just not. It's like the people who think that 9-11 was orchestrated by President Bush for whatever reason. I mean, it's it's a kook theory that, that's there. And I guess the reason that we care about or that I care about or I think it's interesting is that you have, you know, people who look up to a guy like a Steph Curry and he's out there saying, well, we didn't land on the moon. This has all been it's a Stanley Kubrick movie to which you go, oh, my gosh. And this is the person that impressionable young people are looking to. That's why I, I think it, it gets scary out there because you do really wonder what's the future going to be like if people are getting their information from, you know, what Steph Curry thinks and believing it. 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1237, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There was a surreal, that, that's the word that I will use. There was a sur- an, yet another surreal moment in, in Washington this morning. President Trump had had a closed-door meeting with Chuck Schumer, who is the Democrat minority leader in the Senate, and House minority leader Nancy Pelosi. She will 
once the new Congress comes in in January, she will be the House Majority Leader. And the discussion was, what do what should be done with regard to the looming government shutdown? If you haven't been following this, the, the government is once again scheduled to run out of money for for certain certain operations, certain domestic operations. Um, some things like defense have been funded by a long-term agreement, but for many other aspects of, of the government, the Department of Interior, the Department of Justice, et cetera, et cetera, those, those departments are scheduled to run out of money, I believe, on December 21st. So now the question becomes, what what happens? There is a move afoot to try to get a continuing resolution, which will continue to fund these government operations into the the next year. Now, of course, you've got the political dynamic, which is after early January, once the Democrats take over Congress, it's going to be a bit more difficult. It's going to be a lot more difficult, perhaps, to get an agreement. Right now, you've got, you know, the Republicans that control the House of Representatives and the um, and the, the Senate. The hang up at the moment is that President Trump wants five billion, B as in billion dollars, to be committed to what he calls border security. And included in his demand for border security is the funding for this this wall that he has been talking about since the campaign. Now, remember, during the campaign, he talked about wanting to build a wall across the entire U.S.-Mexican Mexico border, and he would make Mexico pay for it. Well, that that idea of Mexico paying for it has kind of gone by the wayside. But now President Trump is talking about, well, okay, we're we're going to pay for it, and I want the money to pay for it. The the Democrats, while you know everybody understands you talk about border security, the Democrats don't want to give him that money for the wall unless he makes concessions on issues of immigration. There's a number of Republicans who don't believe that spending billions of dollars for the wall is is appropriate president trump says that if he doesn't get and this is this amazing like press situation they had this press availability i i I don't think i've ever seen anything like it because normally people at least try to be civil and they try to be civil for a little bit and it quickly degenerated kind of into this i don't know shouting match but they're hurling insults back at each other but the bottom line is that president trump says okay here here's the deal I, I'm not going to accept this. If you don't give me the money to build the wall, I, I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to shut down the government. You know, he said if there's not border security, and in his definition of border security, he includes the wall. He says if there's not border security, I won't take it. I am proud to shut down the government for border security. I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down, and I'm going to shut it down for. Border security. And again, the, the president equates border security with building the wall. A lot of Republicans in Congress aren't with him on the wall and the funding for it. No Democrats or very few Democrats in Congress are, are with him. So I think, all right, the president's saying, I will shut it down if I don't get the funding for the wall. Now, we have seen how previous government shutdowns have worked. In almost every case, it has work to the detriment of the Republicans who have been blamed for this. And when you have a government shutdown, it's kind of a misnomer because essential people keep coming in, 
people, you know, federal employees get furloughed, but they always, or at least in the past, they've always gotten their their pay back. So it ends up being uh, essentially a few week vacation for however they're off, and the general public is inconvenienced by this. But let let's tee this up. I mean, the president has drawn a line in the sand, and he said. I'm willing to shut down the government in about two weeks or so, maybe a week or so. I'm willing to shut it down. I don't care what we do over the holidays. I will shut it down unless I get border security, meaning full funding for my wall. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it worth shutting down the government again for money for the wall, which Mexico is no longer apparently going to pay for, at least up front, it would be the U.S. taxpayers. Is this worth shutting the government down over? Should President Trump stick to his guns? He appears now to have drawn a line in the sand. It's been two years. He hasn't gotten his big wall. Now, there's there's some walls, of course. All right, is this worth a government shutdown? Who will win? Who will lose? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're back to discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'm getting a number of text people saying, I'd be in favor of shutting down the government permanently. Well, easy to say until you're waiting for that Social Security deposit to come in or you're expecting your passport because you're supposed to get on that cruise ship or all the different other things that you depend on the government for. 414-799-1620. In any event, President Trump today, he's saying uh, enough is enough. He says, if I, if I don't get... Funding. If I don't get $5 billion for border security, and when he's using the phrase border security, what he means is he wants funding to build the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. If I don't get that, yeah, I'll take – it'll be on me. I will shut the government down. Should we do that? Dan on the south side. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Happy holidays. Same to you, sir. Hey, I, I'm 100% against this wall, and if anything, if Trump – I mean – if the Republicans don't want it and Democrats don't want it, this whole thing is on Trump. There, there's no doubt about it. I mean, and the people that are backing them, I mean, what is the wall? What is good is the wall? It doesn't work in the first place. Well, I, I, I guess, yes. I mean, I guess that that's that's the question. Would it work? And would it be worth all that money? And would it be worth shutting down the, the government and all the inconvenience and all the expense and all the, the money that you end up losing for doing it? I mean, is, is this worth it? Let me ask you this. Let, let us say we have another government shutdown. Who's going to get the credit? Who's going to get the blame? Well, I'm hoping Trump will. I'm really yeah. impressed. What, I don't see either party back in the law, and I don't see what. Why would you argue with the Democrats or the Republicans? I'm, I, I mean it. Why? Yeah, you just kind of say, okay, this is. I mean, thanks to you. You just kind of say that this is this is the president. Now it's interesting. There's a poll that's out, um, Marist, um, which does polls for NPR. It tends to be a more liberal leaning poll. Um, they say 57 percent of Americans think the president should compromise to prevent gridlock. 70 percent say building a border wall should not be a priority. But 65% of Republicans don't think that President Trump should compromise. So, I'm, I mean, my, my guess is President Trump looks at some polls like that when he decides to make this decision, thinking that the vast majority of Republicans are, are with him and are prepared to shut down the government over the, this border wall. I mean, is that really where we are? 414-799-1620. Tony in West Bend. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? What should happen here? 
Uh, I'd be a hundred percent in support of shutting it down, but I would I would say this ahead of time: if I was Trump, I would say there will be no back pay, no making up benefits to public employees, none. So we have two weeks or whatever we have. Let's get it done, or mm-hmm. or that'll be it. Well, and that I think your last your last call is funny because. Without a border, we're not a country, are we? Right. Well, and we I have think no border. right. And I guess the question, though, is Tony. I I, 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 I would hope everybody would agree with you, and I would hope that you know everybody would be in favor of border security. To me, the question is: Do do you need to have a physical wall? Does that even make sense? Is that well, is that practical? Jeff, I I'm not a I'm not a I can't forecast the future, but here's what I do know: That's a hundred percent factual. What they've done for the last 30 years has meant squat. Mm-hmm. It's been a complete and utter failure. Yep. So if, if you want to talk about more of what they've done for 25 years, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. Well, build I guess... If that doesn't work, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. I guess, now, build the wall. Uh, I guess, see, I, I look, matter of fact, we've got another topic related to immigration coming up in, in just a little bit and some new numbers out about who's working here. Look, I... To me, the question isn't border security. I mean, everybody would agree with that. I'll be honest with you. When I heard Donald Trump, then candidate, talking about a wall, you know, during the campaign, I I thought he was referring to the wall as a as like a metaphor. All right, we you know we we want to you know we we want to create a a quote unquote wall of security at the border. And I mean, I thought he was talking about let's spend the money, let's put in more agents, let's use the satellite technology, let's use all the things that we have in 2018 that are available to us, the infrared technology, all that type of stuff. I didn't realize. I, I guess I was hoping he wasn't talking about a, a physical wall that people can go over or under or or around. That's as a practical matter. The reality is, it, it's it's not even possible to do this because there's large areas of the border where you you can't build you, you can't build a wall. There are areas, of course, along our border where we do have walls and we should have walls. And I'm not arguing that a wall in some areas along the border, maybe extending it or whatever, wouldn't make sense. But th- this idea that we have to have this wall that runs all across the border, to me, I've I've never seen it as practical. If you go down in, into you know, in te- there's area of Texas where you're talking about if you were really to do this, you'd be building this wall through people's backyards, and you're going to be looking at years of litigation and things like that. I, I'm all in favor of border security, and I'm all in favor of putting money into secure the borders because I agree with our last caller, Tony, who says, you know, without a border, you know, a country is nothing. I, I support all that. I guess the question becomes, is this, figuratively speaking, the, the, the hill you want to die on, on on a physical wall? Or should you say, look, I mean, this is important. Can't we all agree that we need $3 billion more for additional agents and additional technology and all these different types of things? Do you really want to go to the mats shutting down the government with all the political consequences it's going to have over over an item, a thing that maybe, you know, was, was something that you, you built walls back, you know, in the Cold War in, in, in East Berlin. Do you still do that in 2018? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Brian in Oconomowoc. Brian, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Brian. Um, this, this is a really interesting conversation because um, this is just a, another example of our president just needing something to put his name on. A tangible thing. When you were, when you said you thought it was a metaphor for something, I, I, 
I mean, you have to understand what a metaphor is, and I don't, I don't know that Donald Trump understands what a metaphor is. He needs tangible things that he's looking at that he can put his name on, like trade agreements. Rip mm-hmm. them down, change a little thing, rename it. It's his. Mm-hmm. So he needs he needs that paper in front of him. He needs that wall to look at, to point at, and say, I did that. I'm me, me, your president. I did that. It's not about the people of America. He doesn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he cares yeah. about the things that he can put his name on. And, and you know, he, he, this guy will never understand what a metaphor is. So See, because to, to me, the, 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 com- the, the compromise here that you, you should get everybody on board on is saying, look, we, we should all agree that border security is, is important. I'm not hung sure. up on this physical wall. I tell you what, how about we agree not five billion. We agree with three billion dollars, and we're going to put that into increased technology and more personnel and this or that or, or the other thing, and then everybody gets half a loaf, and and then you kind of move on. To me, that's the that's the position that that you take, and everybody comes out of as a winner instead of. Yeah. Has he done that? Has he ever done that in his presidency? Is well, that something that you've seen him do that you that gives you a feeling that that might happen? Right. The, the idea of compromising in any way. Not a, not at all. It's his way or the highway. And unless he gets something that he can physically stamp his name on, <laughs> he he doesn't want to do it. Um, For him, that's uh, all. That's what he needs. Oh, okay. So let's say they cannot reach. Well, what, here, here's the way this will play out. Congress will pass a, a, a bill. Senate and the House will pass a bill authorizing continuing spending. It goes to the president's desk. He vetoes it. And so then, you know, you have you have another one of these government shutdowns, and maybe it lasts a week or two weeks or three weeks or, or however, however long it lasts. Who gets the credit? Who gets the blame? Is this a winning strategy for Republicans, for Democrats, for the president? Who wins, who loses out of this? For, for me, no, nobody wins. Yeah. The, the only person that wins is potentially Donald Trump with his base. Right. That's it. That's why. That's why. The, that's why this president just drives me insane. Right. He doesn't do. He's not doing. He's not thinking about this from a pragmatic standpoint of let's get something done that everybody can agree on. That border safety. I think both sides of the aisle can agree that we can do better and we should do better. Right. Right. And we can. Right. <laughs> if well, we just listen. Um, yeah, thank, thanks for the call. But I mean, there, right? I mean, it, it, it is interesting because I have no doubt that there were some people who watched that press conference this morning, or we'll see it later on when they replay it on the talking head shows or whatever, and said, "Okay, that's that's what I want out of President Trump. He, he's not taking any poop from Nancy Pelosi or from Chuck Schumer. You know, he's telling him it's my way or or the highway." And I, I guess I, I, I understand that there's some people who like that. To me, that that's not a winning strategy. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you sacrifice border security. I, I'm not. I'm just saying I, I think if your definition of border security comes down to billions of dollars for technology or for something that probably went out of fashion 50 years ago, well, all right, you know, sign up on Tom Barrett's trolley. 1255, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 107, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, I am wearing my, my Packers sweater today, so I, I want to understand. I, I am, of course, a fan, but I was listening to Greg Matzik's report. Well, the, the the Vikings have to lose two of their next three games. Well, that that's okay, but, but let's start with what has to happen first, which is that the Packers have to win all three of their remaining games, including going to Chicago and winning at Chicago on Sunday. Now, again, I, I hope they pull it off. Don't, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, 
The Packers haven't won a road game all year. They are 0-6 on the road. The Chicago Bears, maybe they might have the inside track to go to the Super Bowl out of the NFC this year. They've got an amazing defense. I, I The Packers are, are beaten up with injuries. I don't know what the spread is going to be. My guess is the Packers are probably going to be close to double-digit underdogs. That would be my guess, which isn't to say that they, they can't end up winning. Uh, but just... I, I'm still not trying to look at this like too much in rose-colored glasses. If Minnesota loses this week and the Packers are somehow able to pull out a win, well, maybe then you could start talking about it. But what the odds are still like three or five percent or something like that, and that's, I, you know, when it's you know ninety-five percent chance it's not going to happen. It takes me a little while to get excited, but you know we all want to see, and I will be paying attention to the game on Sunday as most people will undoubtedly, especially if you're a Packers fan. All right. It's been interesting how things change over the course of a lifetime for certainly my parents and my grandparents, and I think a lot of people of my generation, the the idea of the American dream, whatever, however you want to define that, but it included it included owning a home. I, I remember um, after I got married, you know, we we one of the first things we did after we got married is we we bought a we bought a home. Um, bigger home than we could afford. We grew into the home. It's always, we had this big living room at our house and it, it didn't have furniture in it for about four years because I, it just couldn't afford it. But, you know, it was a home that we ended up loving and we were in there for about 30 years till I sold it, um, or, you know, earlier, earlier this year. I, I absolutely loved it. But that part of my idea of the American dream was owning, owning a home. Also, there's all sorts of financial reasons why you want to own a home. I mean, if you rent, you know, it's true that you don't have the responsibilities of, gee, I need a new roof or, gee, you know, something's gone wrong with the basement or whatever, or the furnace is out and you have to replace it. I, I understand if you rent, you don't have that. But at the same time, you're also not building equity. You know, the rent, whatever you pay every month, it, it's gone and you're not going to, to get it back. But so for for many people, like I say, certain my grandparents, certainly my grandparents' generation, my parents, my generation, the idea was it was home ownership was part of the American dream, and it was one of the keys to long-term wealth because when you're in that house, you are building equity in the house, and presumably at some time you will be able to to cash out. Much has been written about millennials, and one of the things that has been out there now, I, I always turn to my producer Gru and say, you know, you're kind of at the you're sort of at the tail end of the millennial generation. But one of the things about the millennials, it's been said that that home ownership isn't as much of a priority, perhaps as it was in baby boomers and, and others. The idea has been, hey, we we want to be more you know footloose and fancy free. And if you have an apartment, well, you're you're not tied down, et cetera, et cetera. Interestingly, there's a new study that's out by by Bank of America. And what it finds is that millennials are redefining life's priorities by placing home ownership above nearly all other key milestones. In other words, it's kind of been like a sea change where more and more people are now suddenly starting to say home ownership is is important and more important actually than things like marriage and children and more important than travel and, and things you know like that. And the idea is that to the extent that, you know, owning your own home was ever had ever fallen out of fashion, that's now starting to, to turn around. And more and more people are saying, no, this is what we want. We, we, we want to 
We want to buy homes. I want to open up the phone line. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's tee this up. Is this, is homeownership still important? And is homeownership important to, to you? I mean, owning your home, building equity, um, having a place that is yours. Is that a priority? Is that something that's important? Is it something that you strive for? Or is owning a house just kind of, well, kind of like a, an, an albatross around your neck? Well, gee, if I own the house, I, I've got this house, and the house is a money pit, and I've got to put all this money into it, and it's, it, you know, it ties me down, and I'm stuck in this particular neighborhood, etc. Whereas if I rent, I can pick up, I can move, I can change jobs, I don't have to worry about any of that. Is homeownership still important to you? And do you think it's going to be important to people in the future? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. New studies suggest that not just for baby boomers, not just for the greatest generation, but now for more and more people up and down the line, well, I mean, home ownership is something that they really strive for. 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 113 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 115 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, how important is owning a home to you? I mean, there's been this thought out there for the longest time that uh, more and more younger people, and maybe it's a function of student debt or differences in priorities or whatever, that, that owning a home is, is not is not the be-all, end-all that it was for a lot of older people. Is that the case? Now, there's this new study out there that suggests that that may, in fact, be changing. Let's start with Mark and Franklin. Hi, Mark. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I'm 48. Um and a lot of when I was growing up, a lot of my friends wanted to get a house, and uh, that was kind of the mindset at the time. But I owned a home for well, a small period of time. I was engaged; it didn't work out, so we ended up getting rid of it. But I hated it. It was just clean the gutters, mow the lawn, weed. It just took away any free time I had. I didn't enjoy it. Right. So it was kind of like again, there was an albatross around your neck. You some people get into gardening and home maintenance and stuff like that. For you, it was a chore. It really was, yeah. It, it just seems like, like something always had to be done. Yeah, I know. Thanks for well. I, believe me, I, I having lived in an older house and I loved my my house, but it was it, it was that. And now I, I'm not handy either, so I had to find people to hire to do the stuff. But I, 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 I mean, some people are really, really good at that. But at the same time, I mean, like I say, whether it's a condo or whether it's home, for my entire life, I, adult life, I, I pretty much owned something and you know have, have built equity in it. And I have a number of texts that bring out this point. Jeff, we bought a house in 2006, and then the 2008 crash. So much for equity, we sold it for earlier oh, earlier this year and lost over eighty thousand of dollars on it. Now we are renting a house because we've lost all that money and we have no down payment. Um, here's one. Bernie says, "I'm a millennial. I was born in 1988. Just sold our home that we owned for five years and moved into an apartment. Building equity is no longer a guarantee. Housing crisis of the late 2000s will always be a threat. Not worth the risk." if it's not your dream home 414-799-1620 is that true i mean is are, are we falling out of love with the american dream which used to be hey we, we want to have home ownership let's talk to mike on the northwest side mike you're on wtmj good afternoon yeah good afternoon jeff i i believe maybe the you know the home ownership thing might be in a stagnant mode right now but i really believe that the uh, people that are 
opting to rent or lease down the road. They're just going to have a stack of receipts and nothing to show for it. I believe that the home equity thing, if you buy in the right place and keep it up, uh, you're going to be in good shape. I uh, firmly believe that. And furthermore, uh, you know, I think that people are maybe downsizing now and the People that have smaller ranch homes are kind of going to be benefiting from people that have big homes moving to less maintenance. Right. right, yeah, as you right, you you downsize, you get older, you don't need the you don't need the four bedroom house in the suburbs uh, because the kids are all gone and things like that. So you're looking for something that's smaller. You're looking for something maybe that's easier to maintain. But you know, the, the truth is, Mike. See, I'm with you. I think there's always going to be a, a demand. I, I think you. I think one of the things we've seen with some of the younger generations out there is there been there's maybe been a delay in getting married and having kids and things like that. But once 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 you do that, once you start having a family and things like that, well, I, I think I think that's where you really have the demand that kicks in for for home ownership because you want a yard, you want a good school system, and it's I mean it's tough to raise kids in apartments in the city. I'm not saying it can't be done; it's just tough to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, thanks for calling. See, that's where I think, you know, you really start to see the demand. It's just to the extent that these studies earlier might have suggested that this this wasn't as much of of a desire or there wasn't as much pressure. There wasn't as much desire for it. Like I say, I just think that's a consequence of, of a natural effect of of delaying things. I mean, I, I understand if you're just getting out of school and you've got a boatload of school debt and you're trying to figure out how to pay it and you're trying to find out your job and you're trying to get established. I mean, I understand why the last thing you want is to necessarily try to, you know, find a, a house somewhere and you're going to have to come up with a down payment. You're going to have to come up with all the money to buy furniture and things like that. I get all that. But I do think that dynamic changes when you when you decide that, okay, now is the time that I'm going to settle down and we're going to start having kids or whatever. Now, maybe you're doing that a little bit later. Maybe you're doing that at, at 28 or 29 or 30 instead of doing it at 22 or 23. But once you start doing that, then it's, oh, my goodness, you know, we, we want a safe neighborhood. And I think at some point in time, it, it does end up becoming an investment. And I appreciate the a text we got from people who there's always a risk that you're going to buy at a right time, especially you're going to buy at a right time or a wrong time. And if you don't hold the house long enough or, or whatever, I mean, I, I guess there always is some risk that is involved in these things. But I think as a general rule, if you you know buy a good piece of property in a good neighborhood, chances are it is going to appreciate. So I believe these numbers, I, I think they're they're unquestionably true. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're going to see, you know, more and more people continuing to look for homes. Now, there might be different types of homes. There might be a different view of, you know, what is the American dream? Is it really, you know, a house that, that's in, you know, the suburbs 30 minutes away from the city or something like that? That that might be a little bit different. You don't know where the housing market's going to lead. But at the end of the day, I think most people are always going to want to own something if they possibly can. It's 122. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 123, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Interesting political story out from the, the city of Milwaukee. Tom Barrett, who has been, uh, he's in his fourth term as the mayor of Milwaukee. He's 64 years old. And the speculation is, is is he going to run for re-election again? Now, he's not up for a re-election for about a year and a half. I guess the election would be April of, of 2020. So Barrett doesn't have to decide anything. Like I say, he's 64 years old. He's completing his fourth term. It, it It's not 
like it hasn't been rocky the last couple years. You've had the huge scan. Uh, in addition to all the other issues that you have being the mayor of a big urban you know area, you know, he's had the, the huge scandal involving the health department. And I, I don't see how you avoid some responsibility for that. It's your health commissioner and you've got the, the lead and things like that. Um, so and you've had the, the controversy. There, there's no question about it. The flip side of this is that Milwaukee, Milwaukee tends to elect the same mayor over and over and over and over again. Milwaukee, generally speaking, does not replace mayors. Um, they retire or they they leave in their middle of the terms, but they, they don't typically get beaten at the polls. And I, I bring this up because there's a, a new poll that's out there. And again, it's a year and a half away. I don't think anybody is really keying in on on this election. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of elections between now and then, but there's a new poll out. And um, it, it looks at, apparently it's, it checks out, it's done by some place called Remington Research Group, which is described in the newspaper as a Republican survey firm out of Missouri. And they ask people their, their choices. Here's what they say. 53% of voters said that they would support Barrett running for a fifth term. A third say that they would oppose the mayoral bid where 14% were unsure. Then they do um, see a head-to-head between some of the announced or potential challengers. Barrett gets 42% of the vote in the survey. Tony Zielinski, who's announced as a challenger, conservative alderman, gets 23%. And Ashanti Hamilton, who is the Common Council president, who I think surprised some people by filing papers a week or two ago which would allow him to raise money that's he hasn't announced that he's going to run but by forming a mayoral committee what ashanti hamilton does is he increases the amount of money that people can donate to him because as an alderman there's a limit uh, of a few hundred bucks I, I think 600 bucks off the top of my head could be wrong but if you if you're running for mayor the amount of money that you can take in from donors is larger. So Hamilton has created a committee to allow him to take money in that regard. Hamilton comes in at, at 19%. And, and so people are like kind of looking at this poll and they're trying to read the tea leaves and say, what does this mean? What doesn't it mean? Well, let me, let me tell you. First of all, I would take this with a grain of salt. Like I say, you know, when you look at things a year and a half away, I guarantee you, of all the things people are concentrating on, even in the city of Milwaukee, they're, they're not thinking about the race for mayor in April of 2020. It's just not on people's radar screens. I mean, that's number one. Number two, people aren't focusing on the issues at all. And number three, I, I think, as a general rule, both when it comes to Tony Zielinski and to Ashanti Hamilton, they're they're just not known to the voters because they, they haven't at least not like Tom Barrett, who's been the mayor for you know an extended period of time. If Tom Barrett runs again, because it is so difficult to beat incumbents, even though there's a ton of baggage, I mean, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to beat him. Tom Barrett you know, is going to have a lot of money. He's apparently been calling a lot of supporters, trying to get them on board in the event he decides to run again. And I don't think there's any question if he does, he will be he, he will be formidable. You, you can't say that. You can't say he's not. The interesting dynamic, and here's what nobody has a handle on, is whether or not Ashante Hamilton, the, the head of the Common Council, really does get into the race. 
because one of the things, you know, Milwaukee has never had an African-American, has never elected an African-American mayor. Marvin Pratt served as the acting mayor for a while, but we've never elected an African-American mayor. That clearly is going to have an appeal. You also have some very, very wealthy people, starting with County Executive Chris Abley, who are supposedly extremely close to Ashanti Hamilton. And the interesting dynamic would be if he chooses to get into the race, you know, where would people like Chris Abley come down? Would you see a sort of splintered Democrat coalition? Uh, Where does it all shake out? It would be absolutely fascinating. I will tell you this. My take is I don't see Ashanti Hamilton running for mayor if Tom Barrett decides that he wants to run for a fifth term. On top of that, I don't see Barrett going anywhere. I mean, he's, he, like I say, 64 years old now. Um, I don't get the sense that he knows what he would do with himself if he wasn't being mayor. You know, you read various interviews and he says, you know, that the stuff that I like to do, that's what I do as, as mayor. There, there's some people who have very, very clear ideas as to what they want to do when they retire or when they step down, etc. And there's other people who, you know, are very, very much into their jobs and their jobs kind of define who they are and what they like to do. And those tend to be people that stick around and try to do their job just as long as they possibly can. So it's going to be an interesting dynamic. The story today is going to be that this poll that's out there that shows that Barrett is ahead, but not ahead by any substantial margin. Take it all with a grain of salt. Tom Barrett has not been in re-election mode. Once he goes into re-election mode, I think he's going to be difficult to beat. I don't see Ashanti Hamilton running if Barrett runs. My guess is, if I had to predict now, Barrett runs again in April and probably wins again and we can all debate whether that's good or bad it's 135 jeff wagner wtmj all right i want to put stuff in in context the the big wisconsin political story over the last week or two has been the special session of the legislature extraordinary session of the legislature that passed a, a number of of bills many of which would restrict would change the power of the incoming governor and the incoming attorney general that would give more power back to the the legislature now we've talked a lot about this the I am one of these people, and I know you may disagree with me, but I am one of these people who thought that these these bills this should not have been taken up and it's not to say that I don't agree with the merit of some of these things, but I, I want to be consistent. And the truth of the matter is, when you have a lame duck session, and that's what this is, I know some people are saying, well, no, the legislature is going to be continue to be, you know, in, in office, Republicans are going to control that. But let, let us be honest here. I mean, the reason the Republican legislature did what they did is because Tony Evers is going to take over as governor, and they don't want him to be able to undo some of the things that, uh, were done over the course of of the last eight years. I agree with that in principle, and there's bills that I could certainly support both, you know, in theory and in practice. I just don't think it's good policy. And I've argued this before. I argued it eight years ago when Jim Doyle and the Democrats tried to do things which would hamstring the incoming Walker administration and the Republicans who were going to control the state legislature. Now, they tried to do it. 
They, they didn't back off out of any sense of nobility. They they weren't able to get it done because one or two senators uh, bailed on them, so they didn't have the votes. So there, there's this ton of hypocrisy that's going around. And, I, and I've said this for for all these Democrats who have been saying over the course of the last couple of weeks, "Oh, this is terrible. It's an assault on democracy. This is what democracy looks like." I mean, nuts to that. You know, when Democrats had the power, like I say, eight years ago, they tried to do the same thing. They just weren't able to pull it off. So there's no high moral ground that's here. That being said, I just think on on principle, I think, and I understand you can argue that, well, Republicans are going to continue to control the legislature after January, so it's not a true lame duck session. I mean, the truth is, they're trying to do what they did now because they know that when Tony Evers comes in, they're not going to be able to do it. And I, I just think I think that is bad policy, and I want to be able to, in good faith, make that argument four years from now if you have Tony Evers trying to do stuff that will hamstring the incoming Republican governor, if there is an incoming Republican governor. But anyhow, legislature didn't listen to me. They, they went ahead and, and they passed these things. Governor Walker now says that he will, in all likelihood, he, the bills aren't on his desk yet, but he now says in all likelihood that he will he will sign most of the legislation. Um, he said he expects that there might be some things here and there that he vetoes, and we don't know what the vetoes are going to be, but that he's going to sign most of the legislation, and that's what I think that we can probably anticipate. Again, I don't know specifically what he's going to sign and what he's going to veto, but but he will he will approve most of it. So that's where we stand. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I'm, I'm candidly, I'm kind of bored with the conversation about, well, should they or shouldn't they? I've stated my position. I know some of you disagree. Others agree. Here's what I think is interesting. The the national narrative of this, and again, I, I read the Washington Post and the New York Times and a lot of the, the mainstream stuff, so you don't have to. The, the, the talking point that is out there has been that if the Republican legislature does what they do, and if the governor signs the, these bills, like he apparently is going to, that this is going to have huge consequences. For example, here's a headline in the New York Times uh, today or yesterday. With power grabs in the Midwest, the Republicans, the GOP, risks a 2020 backlash. Um, many on the left see a power grab underway in Michigan and in Wisconsin. Um, however, some activists see something more political possibilities. And the argument goes on is that, you know, over the next two years, um, what's going to happen is that these, these efforts, what the legislature did over the course of the last week and what the governor will do to the party if he signs these, this is going to have a huge backlash, that this is going to cost people seats in 2020, that voters will be angry and they will take it out on Republicans two years from now. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Right, I want you to look into your crystal ball because here's the way I see it. Even though as a policy matter, I, I, I disagree with doing big stuff in sessions like this, and I have made that argument, this idea that, oh, People are going to be outraged two years from now, and they're going to run to the polls, and they're going to take it out on candidates. I think that's cuckoo. I mean, I I, I just do. The truth of the matter is voters on either side of the aisle have incredibly short attention spans. Now, I understand that the, the I think the most reasonable takeaway of the elections in November in Wisconsin is you saw an incredibly mobilized 
left-wing electorate. Dane County and Milwaukee County in particular, people turning out in enormous numbers because they were angry about Donald Trump and they decided to take it out on, you know, anybody that had an R after their name. And Scott Walker was the, the, the primary, you know, source of, of that angst. And, and that's fine. Elections have consequences. But this idea that, gee, people are going to be mobilized, people are going to be angry. And if Walker doesn't veto this stuff, it's going to, you know, go badly two years from now for Republicans. I just don't see it happening. People have very, very short memories, and I'm willing to guarantee you there is going to be a – my guess is, you know, after the new governor takes over, after the new legislature is seated, whenever it's going to be in early January, within a week or so, there is going to be some new outrage. And then there's going to be a new outrage the month after that. And then there's going to be a new month outrage the month after that. And, and this – this issue, legislation by a lame duck assembly, is going to be long forgotten. 414, probably by next spring, certainly by September of 2020. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't want to talk about the, the wisdom of, of these policy decisions. Do you think that people are going to care about this? a year and a half from now or two years from now, and my answer is no way. 414-799-1620. But what do you think? That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're back to discuss in just a moment. It's 143. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 145, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, I'm one of these people who have argued that I think it's bad policy to do things like the Republican legislature has done during a lame duck session. I know you might disagree with me on that, but but now it's happened. Governor Walker is going to sign most of the legislation. There will be some vetoes, but I'm looking at all these national stories predicting, oh, if, if he does this, this is going to be devastating for Republicans in Michigan, where the same sort of thing is going on, and Wisconsin. People are going to be outraged about this. They will remember this in 2020, to which I say, really? I mean, this, my guess is that this, what is going on now, will be an afterthought in just a few weeks. After Tony Evers takes over, first round of proposals he comes up with, my guess is, and the Republican response, there will be outrage about that. To me, this is, in many respects, politically at least, going to be a tempest in a teapot. Am I right or wrong? Let's start with Tim in Milwaukee. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Tim. Yes, I do I do agree with you on the uh, thought that it probably will be the actual issue forgotten, but I think there's still the reason that there will be continual crises and issues are simply because of the situation that the legislature has caused. So I think that it's always going to be stirring the pot for the Democrats based on you know yeah. that particular issue. Even though the main subject may well have been forgotten, I still think that that's going to be the reason for crises coming up. Well, and, I, I, and don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not predicting that everybody's going to sit around and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> and that the, you know, right. I, could, I'm just thinking. My guess is there's going to be so many more battles that are going to be fought over the course of the next two years, ranging from you know Medicaid expansion to you know pre-existing illness coverage to a whole myriad of issues that I haven't even thought about yet. That that that's that's what we're going to be focused on two years from now when there's the next election. Well, and, and yes, and I do agree with that, but in the same breath, look at the rally call that's occurred with every state and with our past election. Right. And I think it's not because of the last crisis issue. I think people are starting to remember things, 
and making a little bit of a history, you know, connection to, wow, remember when that happened? We need to band together situation, both Republican and Democrat. Well, I mean, and I think it's creating that that tension, if you will. Well, no, I it won't well, go away. Well, no, thanks. You, you, no, you're certainly right to an extent because. I mean, the reaction after after the, the failed recall attempt in 2012, I mean, you, you had people on the right, you had conservatives, you had the Republicans who, who rallied and said, I can't believe that, you know, you had these Democrats that were trying to thwart the will. You know, is this what democracy looks like, to borrow that overused phrase? They're trying to thwart the will of the people and they want to, you know, a, a do-over on the election. And that clearly... Clearly, I mean, for example, the recall movement, I think, brought Republicans out and, and banded Republicans together, and, and that, that stayed together for a couple of years. It, it dissipated over time. I don't know that this lame duck session is going to be one. And let's let's also talk about, you know, one way or the other, what the elephant in the room, no pun intended, is going to be in 2020, and that is going to be whether Donald Trump runs for reelection again. I mean, all signs are that he's going to. You know, if, if the 2018 election was about Donald Trump, can you imagine? Imagine what the 2020 election is going to be, and that is going to dwarf just absolutely everything. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Gary in Pewaukee. Gary, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a fine one out here today. It is. 25 degrees. I'll take it. Yeah, no wind. Hey, uh, I think I agree a little bit with the last caller and uh, also with you that I don't think people usually remember things that happen uh, over the course of two years ago. But what I think is happening, what's going to happen, is these actions are going to further poison the well uh, and mm-hmm. keep people uh, stirred up. They won't know why they are. Right. They'll just know that this is a hateful, um, bloody business, yeah. uh, politics. And this is not going to help it. And so they're not going to remember what happened. They'll just still keep, they'll keep scratching that itch. Yeah. Or uh, realizing that uh, one side is bad and the other side is good, and they won't know why. <laughs> but this cements this cements the ugliness that has happened. Right. Because I think I agree with you that these things in the lame duck session they're not necessary. They're somebody sticking it to somebody else, and when that happens. Even in families, you don't even remember why you don't like Uncle Joe. Right. <laughs> you, you just don't like yeah, him. Yeah, why, why aren't we speaking? Yeah, th- thanks for calling. I mean, I, see, and, and here's... I mean, okay, here's the dynamic. Wisconsin is a very, very purple state. The results... I mean, you, you don't need to read the fancy studies. Here's the bottom line. We are... And this is... It, it actually drives me nuts when I read all these things about, oh, this is gerrymandered or whatever. No, the reality is people tend to cluster... Wisconsin geographically is an overwhelmingly Republican state. The Democrats have two strongholds. They have a stronghold in Madison, Dane County. They have a stronghold in Milwaukee County and in the city of Milwaukee. That, that's it. And if you get enormous, crazy-level turnouts of, of voters like you did this time, in particularly in Dane County, Democrats can do well in a statewide election. If they don't perform up to that level, um, they're, they're not they're not going to win statewide elections. That's just that's just the reality of what's going on. So I guess the question becomes, can can Democrats keep the Dane County Democrat voters and the Milwaukee County Democrat voters? Can they keep them angry enough or motivated enough? I don't, I don't mean to be I don't mean to be 
detrimental when I'm using the word angry, but can they keep them motivated enough that they will continue to turn out in those numbers? If they do, they, they have a chance of winning statewide. If they don't, they're not going to win statewide. Now, again, I, I think you know 2020 is going to be a, a fascinating year. It's one of the reasons that I'm I'm actually looking forward to continuing to watch how things develop because you, you've got Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is going to dwarf everything. And, and I, I mean, for for people who are running for office in Wisconsin and pretty much anywhere else in 2020, my message is good luck. I mean, good luck trying to get your message through because everybody is going to be focused, you know, on that. And you're going to have the Trump supporters and you're going to have the, the Trump haters. It is one of the reasons if I were advising the Trump campaign, not that Mr. Trump would, President Trump would listen to me, it would be that if you look at history, and I'm a big student of history, one of the things that you saw in the past where, for example, President Reagan and, and, and President Nixon in 1968 and, and Reagan in 1980, one of the things that they did is they won very, very contentious elections much like Donald Trump did in 2016. But both Reagan and Nixon were able to expand their their coalitions, which led to much, 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 much bigger wins for Nixon in 72 and for Reagan in 84. You know, once they got in, they were able to expand the coalitions and bring all sorts of additional people under the umbrella, and they went on to landslide victories. Uh, President Trump, for whatever reason, has gone the other way, and and he's appealed to his base without growing uh, again the without without growing the audience. The base loves him, but the base is only thirty some percent or whatever that is, and that's why, depending on who the Democrats run, I think Trump, President Trump, in a re-election effort, I mean, I think he's going to struggle to carry states like that he carried before, like Wisconsin and Michigan and, and Pennsylvania, which is where I believe the election's going to be ultimately won or lost. So far, he has not been able to expand his base, and I don't know if the well is so poisoned that they're never going to be able to do it. But one of the things I do know is in you know two years from now, in the, the elections, my guess is if President Trump is on the ballot, nobody's going to be talking about, well, my state senator voted during that lame duck session to try to limit the ability of the attorney general general to be able to pursue lawsuits nobody's going to care about that i don't think so to me policy issue aside i think whatever walker does and whatever the legislature did i I don't think it's going to have any lasting electoral consequences that's just me 154 jeff wagner wtmj It's 2.08. This is Jeff Wagner. I want to circle back on what we were talking about in the first hour of the program. President Trump apparently willing to shut down the government if he doesn't get $5 billion, a good portion of which would be used. He calls it border security, but he wants to build the, he wants to physically build a, a wall. And we talked about that extensively. By the way, if you miss any of the program, you can go to WTMJ.com, click on the mobile app page. You can download the podcast. I know lots and lots of people do that. Matter of fact, I've been at a couple parties last two nights. I've had a busy social life, courtesy of my wife. And so even we've been at these various parties, and people come up and say, I was listening to you on that podcast. It's more ways to do that. But I, I want to talk about a different aspect of the immigration issue. The I, there, there's, a, there's a big story in the New York Times that cites this new study, and it, it raises a couple interesting questions. Now, first of all, I, I, everybody who says, what part of illegal don't you understand, I get that argument. I, I, I do. The latest numbers in a couple various studies suggest that there are 11 million people 
who are in this country illegally right now. And I, I first of all, I agree that whenever we want to talk about immigration issues, it starts with controlling the border. All right. So you figure out how can we stop and how can we stop large numbers of people coming into this country illegally? And by the way, every once in a while, I get these these kind of nasty emails about, oh, your position on immigration and your hater, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I'm not anti-immigration. I'm anti-illegal immigration. There, there is a huge, huge, huge difference. And I think we should candidly figure out ways to, you know, make it perhaps easier for people to come into this country legally. But, you know, when I talk about, you know, crackdowns on immigration, I'm talking about crackdowns on illegal immigration. But anyways, the the estimates are that right now there's 11 million people that are in this country illegally. Of that 11 million, this new study suggests that 8 million, 8 of those 11 million are not criminals, they're not drug dealers, but they estimate that 8 million people who are here illegally are working, all right? Here's the way the story starts out in the New York Times. They make beds in inns across the country. They pick oranges in Florida, strawberries in California, and vegetables in Ohio, and they have built new subdivisions in Phoenix, Atlanta, and Charlotte. For years, policymakers have talked about shutting off the influence of undocumented workers, but the reality is the economy has grown to rely on them. Ending illegal immigration, say many who have studied this issue, could mean that American workers would lose jobs, companies would close, and the economy would contract. You know, and then it it goes on to talk about how you you have, again, the the estimates are now about 8 of the 11 million people that are in this country are, are largely doing jobs that they can't find that American workers would be willing to do. Undocumented immigrants, overrepresented in low-skilled jobs like farming, construction, and child care. Often these are jobs employers have trouble filling with American workers. And, you know, they talk about, and they, they cite some woman who's an undocumented immigrant from Mexico who works in the vineyards in Sonoma County in California for $15 an hour. And then once the, the picking season ends, she finds work cleaning houses and estates earning $20 an hour. Her husband, you know, works in cow pastures nearby. She says, we're here to do any work. There are no Americans in the fields. So the question then becomes, all right, let's say you, you could magically crack down on these 11 million people who are in this country illegally, uh, the 8 million of the 11 who are in this country illegally, but are working and doing the, these jobs. And the question becomes, all right, what, what happens then? And there's a lot of economists that are out there saying, look, if you take these people out of the workforce, the reality is there's not enough Americans that are willing to replace them and, and do this this work i mean it's there's just not people who are willing to do these type of of jobs they they don't want to be in the fields picking grapes they don't want to be you know working you know making beds in motels or things like that and so the the point of the story is if somehow you could magically you know make these 8 million people go away deport them or whatever what what you do is you'd have a blow to the economy because there's not enough US workers that are willing to do the jobs 414-799-1620 that is the Acunet mortgage talk and text line all right what do we do 
What do we do with these 8 million people? And let, let's use that as a number. Maybe it's 7 million. Maybe it's 9 million. But the, like the, these new studies are suggesting 8. What do we do with the 8 million people who are in this country illegally but who are, are working? I'm not – and again, I, I'm separating this out from the, the people who aren't. But the people who are working, who are doing this work that economists say, you know, you, you, can't, you can't find people – particularly in some of these areas of the country, you can't find them to do the migrant labor. You can't find them to make the beds in the hotels. And the hotels, for example, first of all, even if you paid somebody 20 or $25 an hour to you know, be a maid, you, you still wouldn't be able to find people to, to do that work at that price. And then you couldn't find Americans because they don't want to do that type of work. So what do we do? Let's have an honest conversation. What do we do with those, those 8 million people that are in this country illegally but are working at, at jobs? Do we throw them out? Do we figure out a way to let them stay? How do we handle this given the realities? 414-799-1620. And I understand this is particularly sensitive around here with the dairy industry because, you know, the, the farming in general and the dairy industry in particular is a tough way to go. You know, we've talked about the studies about how many people who are immigrants and let's let's separate let's just whether it's legal or illegal who are here who are doing these jobs you know working on the dairy farms and stuff where you, you can't find people who want to do that kind of work 4147991620 back in just a moment what do we do with these 8 million people if you're on the line please hold on it's 215 Jeff Wagner WTMJ 217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A, a lot of the conversations that are going on right now are, are designed with border security. What, what do we do stopping people from coming into this country illegally? And I, I respect all that. There's a new study out that says there's about 11 million people in this country illegally. Of those 11 million, about 8 million are working. And they're working at jobs that Americans, by and large, don't want to do. And if you suddenly took all these people out of the economy, at least there's a lot of economists who say we'd be looking at a recession because you you wouldn't have – you couldn't find people – that would pick the fruit or would work in the motels or do this stuff because a lot of the people that are here illegally are doing things that that Americans just don't want to do and that's not going to change. 4147991620. Let's start with Scott in Green Bay. Scott, good afternoon. Oh, where can we start? Okay. Well, you 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 get to pick. Okay. You get to pick. Go ahead. All right. Let's let's pick on the farmers first, okay? All right. Uh Fifty years ago, we didn't have Mexicans over here picking the farmers' grapes and vegetables. We did it with big families and everything else. The farmer has to get motivated. The farmer has to spend more than less than he makes. You know, there's no reason that a farmer. I mean, they supply the United States with food. I don't mind paying another fifty cents for a cup of uh, strawberries. I don't. If I like them, I'm going to pay the price. Farmers have to increase the rate. For these people in America that live here legally and that are citizens, give them a better wage. Well, but but, is it, but you think that's people? but I mean, do you think that's the trick? I mean, seriously, Scott, because what a lot of people will tell you is it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you pay. It, it, so you, you pay fifty cents more an hour or something. You're still yeah. not going to be able to find somebody who wants to work on the dairy farm. They, they want they want to do something else. It, it's not like it was fifty years ago, where you know you you everybody stays on the family farm. The kids don't want to work on the farm, and it's not fifty no, cents an hour. I, I don't. 
I don't know if I agree with that because okay. not everybody is educated like the next person. And sometimes if a person wants something, they're going to go work wherever they can work. I, Jeff, when I got out of the service, it was 1981. Jimmy Carter was the biggest failure this country has ever seen. Unemployment was in double digits, right. if I remember right. I couldn't get a job nowhere, but you know where I work? I went out in Algoma, and I picked apples with the ladies and mm-hmm. cherries, and I bailed hay at, what is it, $3.25 an hour? Right. Because I had a wife. Right. <laughs> you know, well, I, I wanted a car. <laughs> well, no, and see, Scott, and thanks for, I mean, see, look, I respect that. I, I, I do, but... It, it's, I mean, I, I'm trying to, it's not 1981 anymore. I mean, I guess that's, that, that's the issue that's here. And I mean, I just, I, look, I wrestle with this too. I, I, I understand. But I mean, the reality of this is, I, I don't know where, I don't know where a lot of these workers are going to come from. I mean, and, and, and let's take Wisconsin out of the equation. I mean, if what, uh, think about like the border states and stuff like that, where you have these people who are doing jobs that in general, that it, the, the, Okay, I don't mean to be demeaning, but I mean, I'm going to describe as sort of the more the physical type of labor, the more menial type of work. And and I think a lot of Americans view these types of jobs as being beneath them, and they're, they're not going to do them for $12 an hour, and they're not going to do them for $15 an hour. They're just choosing that not to do that, and that's the jobs that are being filled in, in some regards. I mean, here, here's the bottom line. I mean, I, I think – in any discussion of immigration, number one, you got to control the border. You, you you do. I buy that. At the same time, though, I think you need to figure out a way for a path to legal residency. I'm not saying citizenship, but I'm saying legal residency for the people that have been in this country for a while and are doing some of these jobs. I think, I mean, that's just kind of the reality because I don't think we have enough, especially in today's day and age, where you have un- unemployment, which is getting close to what they call, you know, structurally full employment. Uh, there's my big concern is where are we going to get the jobs? Where are we going to get the people to do all these various jobs that we're going to need moving forward? That's number the number one issue, I think. David and Racine. David, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, David. You know, it, it doesn't bother me so much that these people are here. Most of them are good, decent people. But the thing is, they're not paying any taxes. They're getting paid under the table. Their kids go to school. It's on our dime. Our hospitals go up when they can't pay their bills. You know, if they paid taxes on what they earned, it wouldn't bother me so much. Mm-hmm. Well, in some cases, people do because the money's taken out. But so you're, you're kind of with me. The, the idea is let's, for people who are here working, let's figure out a way to let them stay not necessarily making them citizens, but let's figure out a way to make them stay, and let's make sure that they're they're paying their full share of taxes and Social Security and all that type of stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. No. Th- I mean, to me, that see, that's the type of thing that that again makes sense. And I, whenever we go down this route, oh, you're in favor of amnesty and things like that. Well, no, I'm I, I'm not. But I also I kind of live in this real world, and this again, this this piece really kind of struck me because. It's it's now starting to put a number, um, and and it's again maybe we, we can argue maybe it's not eight million maybe it's seven million people that are working or maybe it's nine million people that are working, but the the truth of the matter is if you suddenly remove nine million people f- who are doing doing work who are picking the grapes in the fields and who are making the beds and are doing all this type of stuff you remove those people from the economy okay what is the effect of this you know going to be well it is going to be increased prices and it's also going to be this article saying some businesses just going to go under because they're not going to be able to find workers or they're not going to be able to pay them enough but the bigger problem is just finding workers because you know we have a lot of americans that just 
don't want to do jobs like that. It's not like 80, 1981. And our first caller said, hey, I, I got out of the service. I had a job. I needed I needed to support my family and I wanted a car and I'm up in Algoma and I'm I'm picking, you know, I'm picking fruit in the fields or, or whatever. I mean, it's for better or for worse. That stuff I don't think is going on anymore. Something to think about. 223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I I have several emails like this. I'll just share one. John texts, I'm a dairy farmer. And Jeff, the honest truth is you cannot find many people under the age of 25 that will do manual labor no matter what you pay them. And and I I do. I hear that a lot from people who I know. Look, I have the great – first of all, farming is a tough way to go. Let's just talk about farming. It's a tough way to make a living with all the different variables, lots of stuff that's out of your control. And dairy farming in particular, I know a lot of people who've worked at dairy farms. Dairy farming, that is a tough, tough job. You know, those cows need to be milked. And those cows – they don't care if it's New Year's Eve. They don't care if it's Christmas Eve. They don't care if it's the 4th of July. They just know that they have to be milked however many times a day they, they need to be milked. And, you know, after they're milked, they're going to be eating hay and they're going to be producing all those byproducts and those stalls have to be mucked and all that stuff has to be done. And, again, it, the people don't care if it's 20 degrees above below zero or if it's 110 degrees in the shade. I mean, that work has to be done. It's hard work. It's constant work. It's tough to get away. And the truth of the matter is it, it's unappealing. And I do appreciate what one of our callers was saying about how, well, used to be at family farms and you had the big kid, you had the big families and you had the six kids that stayed on the farm. Well, that's that's not what the dynamic is nowadays. And I, 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 I on the one hand, you're, you're seeing the more the growth of the, the giant farms and the stuff like that and the corporate farming and things like that. But even then, you, you need you need people. And for whatever reason, good or bad, you have a lot of these industries. And I mean, dairy farming is a great example of that, where because of the rural locations, lots of kids, they, they want to leave. They, they don't want to stay in the farming community. Certainly not everybody, but a lot they, they want to leave or or whatever. And you've got to find people to do that work. And the truth is, a lot of Americans don't want to do that type of work. And not everybody, and I don't know what that says about us as a society, but it's just kind of the reality, and it's one of the things that we end up having to grapple with. You know, I was going to do this as a topic, but I made the decision not to because I, I just I, – I, it's such a dumb thing, and I just – I don't want you to feel dumber. There's just no way about it. it it's this whole controversy involving – the, the Christmas music, and of course, the the latest one is that the, the song "Baby It's Cold Outside." And I, I know every talk show host in America has probably talked about this: the fact that you have, you know, program directors at radio stations all across the country who are pulling this off because it's in the in the hashtag Me Too movement. They find it to be sexist, and you know, um, promoting date rape and things like that. And you know, I was going to open up the phone lines and discuss it, but you know. I don't want you to feel more stupid. And, and it's I, look, the, the latest story is that there's there's a Madison Classic Country Station, WHIT, WIT. Um, they switched to all Christmas music on November 22nd. They have now taken the song out of their holiday mix, 
All right, they're they're not playing it. There's two local stations. Um, there's two local stations in Milwaukee. They're they're still playing it. The program director for WHIT, WHIT Midwest Family Broadcasting. About I'm about what I'm about to say guarantees that I will never work for Midwest Family Broadcasting. Fletcher Keys. I do not know Fletcher Keys. So I am not saying that Fletcher Keys is an idiot. I will say that I think this is an idiotic decision. They pulled Baby It's Cold Outside because they feel that the song would make some customer, some listeners uncomfortable. It's describing a scenario that wouldn't be okay today, so we didn't feel that we had to have it. We didn't want to feel that we were okay with that type of relationship situation. For the love of God, it's a Christmas song. And it's an interaction between two people. And I understand that there's always going to be the perpetually offended and the politically correct that want to read things into it. But, you know, there's the, there, there's these joy suckers that are trying to, like, micromanage Christmas and go into the words of songs and say, well, we know this isn't what was intended when this song was written 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But now, you know, if we view it through our own prisms, now this is the type of stuff that we see. It's just, it's idiotic to pull these songs. It's idiotic to say we can't have candy canes in classrooms. These Christmas joy suckers just drive me absolutely, totally crazy. And the last, the current example of it is, again, some of these politically correct radio stations who are afraid some weird listener might be uncomfortable so we can't have it well i don't know i've been making some listeners uncomfortable for 20 plus years and and we get along just fine all right when we come back vince mcmahon 235 jeff wagner wtmj no we're i'm a number of people wanted to weigh in on the baby it's cold outside no we're, we're not because I, again these are these conversations that end up getting driven by the politically correct and the perpetually offended. And just even having the conversation drops your IQ a few point levels. And I'm, I'm not going to do that to you. I mean, you got the program director in Madison saying, well, somebody might be offended by that. Oh, for God's sake. I mean, then just don't listen. I mean, tune back in a couple minutes later. Who would be offended by that unless you were looking at it? But this, this is the same sort of thing. And I have a whole stack of stories here that you, you see. I collect them, and uh, somebody's complaining because the neighbors have too many lights up on their house and all these things. These are the joyless bloodsuckers who want to suck all the pleasure out of Christmas. I have to... A crew who's producing the show today for me and always. I, I do have to have, though, a serious conversation with my wife who has been – this is really our – this is our first Christmas in our new new home. We were married last year, but we were just kind of in apartments. So we had a Christmas tree, and, and, and she's done her traditional, if you know my wife, just this great job of, like, decorating the house and stuff. But all right, so I have not had an opportunity because we've been very busy the last couple of nights to have this conversation. But, you know, she came back yesterday. You know what she had, Will? Mistletoe. We we now we have we have mistletoe up in our house. As a matter of fact, you cannot you, you walk in the front door, you take a left, that's where our kitchen is. You cannot walk into our kitchen without walking um through under the mistletoe. And I I fully I fully plan to, you know, exploit that mistletoe over the course of, of the, the holiday season. So you know, be, be warned if you're coming over as a guest at the Wagners. But, I'm, I mean, how politically incorrect could we be? You're, you're putting up the, this mistletoe, and where is the Me Too movement on all this stuff? Well, all right, be warned. Maybe we should put up a sign. We have a big sign uh, outside the house that says, like, Merry Christmas. Maybe we should, uh, mistletoe warning, not beware of dog. Don't need to beware of my dog. But mistletoe warning. There is mistletoe inside this house, so be prepared. All right. 
Vince McMahon. Grew, everybody knows who Vince McMahon is, right? Vince McMahon is the, the guy that really revolutionized the, the, the business of, of professional wrestling. Um, it used to be that wrestling had territories. When I was a kid in Wisconsin, we were part of the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. Vern Gagne was the guy that owned that. So that that was kind of a Midwest thing. And there were different leagues. There was a different, like, wrestling association in Florida. There were all these regional promotions that they had. Vince McMahon's father, Vince McMahon Sr., he he owned his territories were like the, the East Coast, the, the Northeast and things like that. When the son took over in the, the 70s and the you know 80s, he, he was a man of vision. He, he said, look, I, I want to take this national. And what he did is he went to a couple of the table, cable national. This is when cable TV was just starting to, to make it big. And uh, yes, yes, there was a point in time where. Not everybody had cable TV. You know, cable TV was really, you know, something of the 70s and 80s and started taking off. And you had these different cable networks that were desperate for programming. And so he cut this deal with a couple of the cable networks to provide them programming. And he took the, it used to be the WWF, the World Wrestling Federation. Now it's the WWE. But he took it national. And you created, you know, the, the larger-than-life characters, the Hulk Hogan's of the world and things like that. And he essentially just he, – he won. He went national, and he drove all these, like, regional promotions under. But but that's – I mean, he had he had a lot of vision. The guy, love him or hate him, he's he's been a visionary when it comes to things like that. Well, one of the things that he did that failed – was a football league, the the XFL. And you might remember this. It lasted for one season a number of years ago and it and it and it failed. It was it was viewed as this is going to be an alternative to the NFL and we're going to have it's going to have more action and we're going to have characters and things like that. And it didn't work out. Didn't work out. Lasted a year, went under, lost a bunch of money. Well the XFL is back, and Vince McMahon is back, and he's been looking at this, and if you haven't heard the story, he's decided that, hey, football, the NFL brand of pro football, it, it's losing a lot of fans, and and I have, maybe I think what he's thinking is, I was before my time with the XFL, and now is the time to, to bring it back. So what they're announcing is that in 2020, not this year, but in 2020, the XFL is going to be coming back, and they're going to run it essentially in the spring. It's going to be spring football, so it's not going to be up against the, the NFL. I think it's going to start right after the Super Bowl ends. That's kind of the plan. They're planning on a 10- or a 12-week season. But here's what they're saying. I mean, this, this, is, this is what they're marketing. They say, first of all, that the games are going to be faster. Um, they're going to be faster. McMahon says that sitting and watching in a three, three-and-a-half-hour game is laborious. He said they're going to try to you know, cut the game time to around two hours, maybe a little bit more. Don't know how they're going to do it, but they're going to try to do it a lot faster. No politics are going to be allowed. He says people don't want social and political issues. Um, he says if someone wants to take a knee, they do it on their time. Um, if they do it here, boom, they're gone. Uh, no criminal records are going to be allowed. The league, um, again, they're, they're going to be starting in eight cities, 
eight cities where the NFL already has a presence. In many of those cities, they're going to be playing in the same stadiums that the NFL team uh, have. Every team is going to be owned by the XFL, in other words, by McMahon and the investors. So there's not going to be individual owners. They're going to have strict salary caps and things like that. League is going to have a 40-man roster, um, 10-week regular season, four-team playoffs. So the whole thing will be, uh, again, about 12 weeks all in, all done. And they think that there's going to be a market for this. Our number. Now, they, they tried it in 2001, and it, and it failed. It was a colossal bust. But what he's saying is maybe we were just like ahead of our time, and now 2020, approximately 20 years later, maybe it's time for this. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I candidly don't think the NFL has anything to worry about. I mean, the NFL... You know, it's just such a dominant part of, of America. But the question is, is there is there going to be demand for this type of, of football league? Now, keep in mind, they're going to start after the long NFL season is over. But this is the time, you know, you're, you're looking at springtime. So it's the time where, you know, spring training baseball and then, you know, the, the regular season for baseball is getting ready to start. You've got the NBA season winding down. You've got the NBA playoffs. You've got March Madness. You've got all this stuff going on. It, is there going to be a demand for more football? Or are people just going to be tired of it? And is this just a bridge too far? What do you think? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The XFL was a huge failure a number of years ago. McMahon is saying, hey, I can bring it back. I see there's all these problems with the NFL game, and I think if we do it right this time, we can make it work. Will it work? 414-799-1620. And what does it need to do to work? We're back to discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so Vince McMahon, who's been a huge success with the world wrestling with WWE, he says, all right, I'm bringing back the XFL. I know I tried this 10, 15 years ago and it failed. Here's the deal. We're going to bring it back in 2020. It's going to start in February, a week after the Super Bowl ends. We're going to have eight teams New York, New Jersey, they're going to play where uh, the Jets and the Giants play, same stadium. Seattle, Tampa Bay, they're going to play in those stadiums that the uh, Seahawks and the Buccaneers play in. Uh, St. Louis, Los Angeles, Houston, Dallas. Those are going to be the eight teams. It's going to be a faster-paced game. You're not going to have to sit for three hours. We're going to take the politics out of it. We're going to have a lot more fun. Is there a market for spring football? Rich and McGuanago. Rich, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Well, I'll watch it once and see what it's like, and I'll continue watching it if they uh, get rid of all the penalties except for uh, Ill- illegal procedure mm-hmm. offside and uh, flagrant uh, personal fouls. Mm-hmm. Everything else is a uh, fair game. And also, no instant replays except for the ones that uh, the coaches call with the red flags. Well, I don't know. We look at it. If not, it goes. Let, let, the, let the refs do their job, and that's it. Well, I mean, thanks for call, Rich. I don't know exactly how they're going to try to speed up the game, but but he says three, three and a half hours is, is just too long. And, you know, also, I mean, if, if you look at it, the and 
far be it for me to criticize commercials as somebody who makes his living on a commercial radio station. But I mean, that, that is, I think, you know, one of the factors there. He says, we're going to speed up the game. It's going to go a lot faster. I'm not exactly sure how you do that, but I, my guess is, you know, you, you'd have to do part of it would be in reducing the amount of penalties and things like that. Um, to me, the issue is, all right, are, are you oversaturated by football at that time of the year? Now, keep in mind, you know, you had the college football season, which starts, what, in August. You know, the NFL starts after, you know, Labor Day typically. So, you, you know, you've had football going on since, essentially since August. You've got all the spring sports that are starting. Are, are people that into football that they'd be willing to watch that? 414-799-1620. Tom in Greenfield. Tom, you're in WTMJ. Yeah, I would. Uh, I wish they'd uh, bring back arena football. I liked that uh, when we used to have the Mustangs and that, and uh, they could expand on that. that mm-hmm. That's always fun. That's always exciting, uh, and everything else. That's better. You know, it's faster moving, faster paced, and everything else. And you don't have to worry about getting uh, uh, getting snowed on or rained on or blizzards on or anything else. You got you. That's always fun, and they. Cheerleaders and everything else. You got well, right? You, know, you could make it fun. The whole thing. It's it's really good. Uh, it uh, it used to outrival the Brewers uh, when the Brewers. Uh played on weekends there. Well, keep in mind, we're not talking, thanks for calling, we're not talking about arena football and things like that. They still have, they don't have it in Milwaukee, but they still have arena football. But I mean, he's talking about, uh, again, something that's designed to compete, not compete against the NFL, but really be a compliment. I mean, if you were going to compete against the NFL, you'd run your league in September and October and November. McMahon, I think, is too smart for that. He recognizes that you can't go head to head with it. But the idea of, hey, if we do something like this, we can still have have an interest. Now, let's see. Let's, we got a, getting a number of texts on this. Um, da, 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 da. We are already oversaturated with football during the NFL season and college season. There are only two nights right now per week without football. By the time the Super Bowl rolls around, I am ready for a football break. Um, however, I can see that the NFL Network has solid viewership long after the season is over, so maybe I'm unique, but I wouldn't want to watch another 10 weeks of good football, so why would I want to watch 10 weeks of maybe not good football? See, I, I think I think that is I think that's the problem that you're going to have. Do I think if you do this right, you could create... A, a niche. I mean, because I understand there's probably some hardcore fans that are out there that just can't get enough of it. The problem is they're going to have strict salary caps. You're, you're not going to have NFL caliber players. What you're going to have is you're going to have, at best, you're going to have that, that next tier, the, the folks that want to play football, but they're not good enough to make it in in the NFL. So you're you're going to have, I don't want to say a substandard product, but, you you know, it's not going to be that top-notch sort of thing. You're going to have it kicking off. At the same time, you've got all this other stuff that's going on, and you've got to have it, you know, again, it's going to be happening after people have been watching football for six or seven months. Do I think it has the potential to have a niche appeal? I, I do. And I've learned that you never sell Vince McMahon short because the guy, again, I understand the first XFL failed, but the guy's a brilliant marketer. I mean, he, you know, he, he was able to take pro wrestling national and he's made himself a millionaire however many times over, you know. So, I mean, I, I've learned not to sell him short. I just don't know that there's enough demand out there to, to really turn this into anything other than a niche. 
My guess is that you're going to get a TV contract. My guess is that what's going to happen is the first week or two, and I just got done reading a book on the United States Football League, the USFL, which President Trump, then Donald Trump, pretty much killed. He bought into it like the second year, and they were actually doing okay, and and Trump was the one who – I think the general theory is he wanted to get an NFL team, and Pete Rozelle was the commissioner of the NFL, and he had pretty much decided that Donald Trump is never, ever, ever going to get an NFL team. So the idea was Trump bought this USFL team, and he um, made all sorts of promises to a number of the other owners. But the general theory is what he was really trying to do is he was trying to force a merger with the existing NFL, so they'd have to take his team. And what ended up happening is the league ended up going under. And like I say, a lot of people attribute that to Donald Trump. There was a lot of other factors as well. But the USFL, that that couldn't make it work. But at beginning, I mean, the USFL lasted three years, and especially in the beginning, you know, they had good ratings. I mean, there was that kind of novelty factor that was there. I think the XFL will probably, you know, have good ratings when it starts off as well for the first week or two. And then my guess is that people are are going to get distracted. And I, I do think it's an interesting choice to go into markets where the NFL already is. I mean, I don't know if you're a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan or a Seattle Seahawks fan or a fan of the Los Angeles Chargers or the Rams or you're a fan of the Jets or the Giants. Their season is over. Are you going to immediately switch and say, hey, I want to support another Another football team, especially when the Yankees are going to start playing soon and the Mets are going to start playing soon. And um, just just saying, I, I think I think it'll be interesting for a while. My guess is if I had to predict, it meets the same fate as the first XFL does, but could be wrong. It's 254. This is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's afternoon news. Please stick around.